So we have been in, in our small groups going through a resource called The Story, which is an abridged New Testament, um, an abridged, I'm sorry, New International Version uh, copy of the Bible. It's in chronological order. So you can read the story, the history, I guess you could say, the history of what God has done from the beginning to, to the, the current day that we're living in now. And uh, it's been incredible, incredible to like learn, not just where all these, we all, many people have been believers for a long time, a lot of random stuff in their head from the Bible, but aren't sure where it falls in the timeline. This book really helps that. It disciples us into understanding the bigger picture of what God has done and is doing in the world. It helps us to locate ourselves in the story that God is telling in, the, in our world today. Believe it or not, this week we are wrapping up our time in the Old Testament uh, for, for now, and we're going to be starting with the New Testament next week and going through the life of Christ and, his, and, the, and the acts of Christ. And it's really set up in a beautiful way where you read part of Jesus' life the first next week, and then there's all, another passage from the New Testament that complements it. So you get to see both the, the seeds and the stems and the, the flower of, of Christ's work in the world. And it's really, really a cool thing. So if you have not joined in with us, you've been waiting for the New Testament to be over, or Old Testament to be over or something, which you shouldn't do, um, jump in now. Why not? It's, it's great. It's a great resource, and we're really enjoying it. One of the most remarkable things is when you read the end of Malachi, which is the final, wor final word in the Old Testament before a 400-year period, period of silence, meaning a 400-year period where no, no scripture was written. God was still working, obviously. You read the final words of Malachi, and it talks about a new Elijah that's coming. And then you flip over to the New Testament, and you see John the Baptist, who Jesus calls, if you will, he's the Elijah to come. So it's, it's, it's incredible how, it's, how the Bible's connected. It's beautiful. It's, it's mysterious, but it's remarkable. All these authors, all these years, it all fits together in a beautiful way. So today we are in uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi. We're talking about the wall, this wall, the wall that we are representing here today on our, on our wall here. The rebuilding of the people of Jerusalem as they come from uh, captivity and exile and are allowed to go and rebuild the altar, the temple, and then the walls. So we were in the book of Esther last week where we learned about a story that happened when God's people were in exile in Persia. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to, to read it or listen to the sermon from last week on Facebook. Uh, a powerful story of, of finding God in a, in a place where God didn't seem to be, but finding his work. Uh, so, so last week was Esther. Two weeks ago was pretty much part one of today's sermon uh, where we went through Ezra 1 to 6 and, uh, and also listened to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And in that narrative, what we saw was this phrase, God stirred up the Spirit. God woke people up. First, he stirred up the Spirit of the king of Persia to allow his subjects, who were Jewish people who were living, who had been living in Persia for about 70 years, he allowed them to, to return to Jerusalem to worship their God, to rebuild the altar and the temple and the walls. And this is just a miracle when you think about it. You know, the, the conquering king is, not, is, is stirred up by God to release his people to go and build a city with walls to worship their God. Just an amazing thing. But that's what God does. He moves in the hearts. He wakes people up in an amazing, in an amazing way. But God didn't just stir up the, the spirit of King Cyrus. He also says that same phrase, he stirred up the spirit or woke up the spirit of his own people during this time. God's people had to be woken up because they had lived in the land 
of Persia for 70-ish years. If you th- that's like a generation of people that came and went. They were, those people were following God faithfully, but they were really used to living in Persia and having their neighbors and their systems and their supermarkets, whatever it might be. But for those 70 years, they had been faithfully following God's uh, command to them from Jeremiah 29. And it says this, right before they went into exile, God says this to them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So they were really following God's directive in, in, this, in this strange land to multiply their numbers in preparation for something that God would do later. Because of the unfaithfulness of God's people, they had been exiled to Babylon, then to Persia. And God, but God told them, this is going to be a long exile. And you should make your home here. You should get on with your life and bless the city to the best of your ability. And now, the time has come. Uh, God stirred up the, the spear of King Cyrus, and he stirred up the spear of a remnant of God's people in Persia. Not all of them, but a remnant of those people and told them, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. It's time to rebuild the altar, the temple, and the walls in order to worship God. So in Ezra 1 to 6, we see this remnant of people, you know, many, many of whom had not seen the previous temple of Solomon, which was such a glorious temple. Um, along with, with uh, so we had the, the, old, the old guard, people that had seen Solomon's temple, and then the new people who had never seen any temple. And all of these people together built and constructed an altar and began to worship God according to his word, not just according to their whims and fancy, but according to the actual word of God in Scripture. So this, part of this revival was that they got back to the Bible. I mean, to be, to be clear, like they, were, they were people of the word. They, they, had, they wanted to get their priorities in, in the right order, given that they'd had so much trouble in the past. So they, they first built the altar and worshiped God from it in faith for God to protect them as they did so. And then they moved from there to building uh, the foundation of the temple. And when... When that temple's foundation was finally laid, the cries of joy and the cries of sorrow were so loud that people in the surrounding areas could hear them, people that were weeping because Solomon's temple was so glorious and this temple just isn't the same. And then people weeping for joy. Like, we've never seen a temple. This is the best temple we've ever seen. And so you could hear those cries. And people had to reckon with, reckon with what had happened. They had to reckon with their emotions. They had to reckon with their desire to go back to a previous era probably a fantasy where everything was, was great, in order to move forward into the new work was calling them to. But at this point in the story, after, after some rebuilding had taken place, uh, the enemies of God began to persecute the builders and to intimidate them, or continue to do so, because they were threatened by this new community of people that were moving into this land. And so God's people stopped the work that God called them to for 10 years. Now, the king had suggested they do this, not prophets, but the king, and they, they stopped. They began focusing on their own possessions, their own households, their own stuff, and neglecting the house of God in Israel. So then the prophets come forward, Haggai and Zechariah, and they, they, they speak to them. You know, God speaks so directly to them. He says, uh, you have furnished your own homes and made them so beautiful. What about my house? What about my house? What are you doing for my house? And so the prophets kind of snapped everyone into, into order and said, look, maybe the king suggested you take a break from the building project, but that's not God's directive, so keep building. So that was a great gift from God. You know, it shows us that 
in the work that God calls us to in our day, when we're building and rebuilding, we've talked about that quite a bit, new life building and rebuilding uh, the church. Even when there are some missteps and, and lapses of time that go by that are not ideal, God does not abandon his project. And this is a, you know, I, I, think, I think God is the, God does not abandon the project of what he's doing in your life. It says he'll be faithful to complete it. He doesn't abandon the project he's doing in the church. He's going to be faithful to complete the mission of the church uh, with us, hopefully, right? So God did this work once again, 10 years later, to stir up, to wake up the hearts of his people, to pick it all up from where they left off in order to continue following him. So why is this story so instructive to us in our day as we seek to follow Jesus Christ in the modern church, in our contemporary church. And for us who call this church home, New Life Fellowship Church. You know, why would Jen be inspired to create this awesome wall with people from the church and their gifts and their prayers on the wall as a pictorial representation? Now, why would we, why would we compare what God did in, through Ezra and Nehemiah's time to what God is doing here in our little congregation, in our little church? And the answer has to do with God's patterns in history and how God works and what they mean for us as followers of Christ today. Let me tell you what I mean. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 19, it, it talks about the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. It tells us, as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here in Timothy, it says, what's, what's the purpose of the scriptures? And he's, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures here. And he says, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, and they're useful, they're all useful, as they're God-breathed for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why, you know, some, some, some teachers have flippantly dismissed the Old Testament and said, you know, we're not Old Testament people, so we're going to just forget about all that, and we're going to go into the New Testament, starting with Jesus. That that's, makes life a lot easier. You don't, have to, you don't have to think or figure things out that way. You can just kind of start, start at the ground level with Christ. The problem is that the scriptures that are being talked about in the New Testament are the Old Testament scriptures, and they're saying they're God-breathed, that they're useful, and that they, they are able to thoroughly equip a Christian for every good work. So we get wisdom from these stories. That's the purpose of the Old Testament in order to move forward in our, in our day and age. And we get equipping from the Scripture through its teaching, through its rebuking, correcting, and training uh, for the future. So this is a relevant, the Scripture is relevant to us. It's something that we, we desperately need. And, I, and, I, and that's one of the reasons why over the last six years I've been senior pastor here, it's really, it might seem like we're doing the same thing over and over again sometimes. I started out with the essential 100. We went through the 100 uh, scriptures that are very important and tell the story. Then we went into John Soper's Read Through the Bible Together in Two Years program, and now we're back into the story, reading the Bible again, because I know, I know in my heart of hearts that being in the Word of God is, is, is how we're going to be blessed as a church. The Old Testament and the New Testament understanding it. And if you read through these revivals that are happening in the Old Testament, and like Nehemiah, Ezra, and all this stuff that's happening that we're reading right now, or even through the book of Judges, or the book of Kings, or the book of Samuel, whenever people discover and remember the, the scriptures, they bring them out and they read them, and then they follow them, it's like revival happens. Everyday revival. And historically, in the church, this is how revival happens. It starts with the word. Let's just keep reading the Bible together, right? 
It's complicated. It's, it's a little bit messy at times, and we, we lack understanding, but we can get wisdom from it. We can learn how to be followers of Christ from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are both our scriptures, and in our day, in our way. And that's something that God, the Holy Spirit breathes on and makes it new and fresh for every believer. Let's get in the Word, right? We immerse ourselves in these historical stories in the Old Testament. We soak ourselves in them. And then, for the person that's seeking to find God's voice, we are given the gift of wisdom from the Holy Spirit, from God himself, to see what God might be doing among us today. We see how God's people, you know, tend to operate, both in, in response to God, both in dysfunctional and functional ways. We have a lot of evidence of dysfunctional following God in the Old Testament that we can learn from, get wisdom from. We have evidence in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness to his word and to his covenants. And we see that this caricature of a God who is just an angry Zeus in a cloud throwing thunderbolts is not quite true. That's not a picture of who God is. Uh, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, faithful to his covenant, and though he might exile them, it's for, it's for discipline. It's for guiding them back to a place of life. It's for restoring them. So in the Old Testament, you know, we, from, from Genesis to Malachi, we see the patterns of God's work, how people respond to it, we see the frustrating cycle, and again, you, many of you have said, it's so frustrating being in small group and reading of them, them falling over and over and over again in these terrible um, cycles of sin. But we see this frustrating cycle of, of sin, and then we see this cycle of success when people take God's word seriously, seek to honor him. And then the failure they experience when they turn from following God, God neglect his word is a big part of that, and then face consequences for their actions as God is correcting them. So we see this, we see this cycle of like obedience, you know, we call it the sin cycle, and uh, many people have said this. Um, obedience and, 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 and blessing of God, then turning away from God towards idolatry and worshiping other gods, and then discipline, and then the people crying out to God for relief, and then God sending a deliverer one way or the other. And, and in this, uh, pas- these passages in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're seeing God respond to the prayers of his people, uh, and we're seeing him bring the hearts of even a, a, non-Christian, a non-Jewish king to life, and the people of God to life to make worshiping God in Jerusalem a possibility again. So in, in, this, uh, in, the, in, in the cycle, we see that whenever God's people get out of whack, God is so faithful to go after his people. It really, it really is remarkable. And after 10 years uh, in the land, we see God working again to bring people to life. So th- this is how this story is so incredibly important uh, that we're reading because we can gain wisdom from it, we can actually look at our situation as a church body and think about the cooperative work that they did to build this wall. And we can see, we can hear God speaking and you can hear, hear his voice dripping out of this text to us today. This is what God is doing in our day. We have to become wise through understanding the patterns of how God works and apply the wisdom to our own situation. And this brings us to our day, you know, post-pandemic. You know, God is stirring the hearts of people in the world, all around, not just in our church. And God is calling us to a work of building and rebuilding in our day, in which we follow the patterns that God has set forward in his word and seeing what God has done in the past. First Peter 2, 4-5 is, a, is a, a passage about building. And it says, it's talking about the church, right? It says, As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus Christ, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
through Jesus Christ. This, is, this, this, this wall is representative of that work that God is doing. We know he's doing uh, through building up a spiritual house for himself from living stones that each, each of us where he can dwell by his spirit. As far as I'm concerned, in every generation that seeks God, God is there to do a new thing. And God is there to do a new thing I, in, a, in a very special way in our world, uh, I think, at this time. In our church, as far as it depends on us, we are, we are called to build and rebuild the church. And every person, every household, every family has an integral part to play. It's very important. That's why I have had this phrase knocking around in my head, solidifying your membership in the Christ's body at new life. I'm not talking about signing a paper. You might sign a paper someday, but it's talking about becoming the member of the body, like your finger is a member of your hands, right? <laughs> Which is a member of your body. Become that central piece of the body that you already are. Because even if you deny that you're part of the body by not engaging with the body, uh, it doesn't mean, mean that you're not still part of the body. You just might be a broken foot. That's what the word says. And so we all just have to recognize like we are part of the body. It's awesome. And then uh, we, can, we can solidify our membership in Christ's body by seeking the Lord hearing his voice, and then beginning the work of building shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this, that's the inspiration that drew Jen to this awesome idea on the wall here today, uh, where we ask people at New Life to create a brick with your, with your names, your gifts and talents, prayers for yourselves or for your church written on them. And this is something that can be added to. If you did not catch the vision of this last few weeks, you're welcome to come in and bring a brick next week or during the week. But this is a picture, you know, an actual picture of what God desires to do among us. And we are following this pattern of what God has done in the past, which we see in a, in a book like Nehemiah. Just like God's people throughout history, we both succeeded and failed to follow God's direction through our 26-year history as a local church at New Life Fellowship. We've been stirred up by God at times, woken up by his spirit, and begun to do a great work, only to then fall back asleep and lapse and lose our focus uh, and begin to focus more upon ourselves than upon the community of Christ. You know, the church pastors, church members have come and gone over the years. You know, we have been pruned, we have been changed physically and spiritually, and through it all, God has been faithful just as he was to our forefathers and mothers in the past. He continues to stir up our spirits and make a way for us in the wilderness. He has kept a pattern for us to follow and moved us as individuals and households to work at building and rebuilding the church of Christ. And every name, every household, whether it's on the wall or not, who calls himself part of new life has a part to play. Today we're going to be in Nehemiah 3 to look at this pattern that we're following. And this Nehemiah 3 is actually skipped over in the story because they couldn't put everything from the Bible into the story. Nehemiah was actually, 3 was, was glazed over. But I want to go to, to Nehemiah 3. And this will be something you can bring to your small group this week as you gather uh, for worship. In fact, I recommend that you just read the whole book of Nehemiah before small group this week. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. But to recap in where, we've been in Nehemiah, where, where we've been before chapter 3, in Nehemiah 1, we see that Nehemiah, this man Nehemiah, was a Jewish man in exile in Persia and was the, the former cupbearer to King Artaxerxes from Persia. So this is not King uh, Cyrus. That's, this is a generation later, and this is a different king in Persia. And Nehemiah heard some really bad news about how the work had stalled and stopped in Jerusalem. And he was extremely troubled by it. He was someone that wanted the people of God to, to, to come back to their place and to be able to worship God rightly. And he heard that the, the, the partially rebuilt wall had been abandoned for 10 years because the people of God had been intimidated and, by the people around them and then had just worked on their own kind of individual lives and neglected the, the temple and the wall. Once again, God's people had been participating in idolatry, where they had been intermarrying with people that 
worship different gods, which is, always goes very poorly. So this sad, you know, partially rebuilt wall had fallen down. The gates had been burned with fire, probably by enemies. And the people were teetering on the line of idolatry once again. Huge discouragement after the hope of, like, Cyrus got moved. These, the, our guys got moved. We started the work, and then it just stops. So his heart's broken. Nehemiah is really broken up. And then Nehemiah, too, you know, I remember he's the cupbearer to the king. He gives the king the wine, tastes the wine, makes sure it's safe, you know, the whole deal. So King Artaxerxes, oh, it's hard to say. Artaxerxes, get some water. Let's say you know we need water. King Artaxerxes. So King Artaxerxes noticed that Nehemiah looked really, really bad. He just looked devastated. Uh, maybe he'd been crying throughout the night. And no one wants their wine bearer to be a bummer, <laughs> right? It's supposed to be a fun time, not a bummer. But, uh, the king noticed that Nehemiah was upset. And so he said, you know, tell me why you're so troubled. What's going on with you? And once again, God awakes a second king's heart to be open to this work of rebuilding. So if you thought that it was just random that uh, Cyrus got woken up by God, God does it a second time with this king. And he, when Nehemiah tells him why he's so troubled, the, the king gives him time off from work and time to go to Jerusalem and become the new foreman for the work in Jerusalem of rebuilding the temple and the walls. But not only that, the king gave him supplies for the trip and he gave him letters that could be shown to all the enemies to say, look, I'm being told to do this by King Artaxerxes. You don't want to mess with it. So Nehemiah gets all this awesome stuff and he also, you know, their neighbors pretty much gave them all these different materials to work with. So God is just giving everything they need. We pick it up in Nehemiah 2.11. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. This is uh, Nehemiah speaking. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the Jaka, the jackal well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mountain to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not yet know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my, my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. God stirs in their hearts again, and they begin this good work. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, in the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So we see this pattern once again, you know. God's people had begun to work years ago. It stalled out. And God, being the ever-faithful covenant partner, as he is to us as individuals and to us as a church, God stirs the heart of another king. And God so captured Nehemiah's heart in all this that he was weeping over, over this work. You know, hearts were coming alive. So Nehemiah hops on his, on his uh, horse and he quietly assesses the damage. And God gives him some insight as to what needs to be done. And this is, I'm reading between the lines. Because he be, he's becoming the foreman of this project. And through his gifts of administration and leadership, he, he, he figured out how the wall could be rebuilt. Now, Nehemiah knew his people. He knew who was in the land. 
He knew their capacity. He knew what they were each capable of, uh, both alone and in terms of their families. And Nehemiah, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, assigned to each person and household a part of the rebuilding work. So instead of just saying, okay, everyone rebuild, you know, he had some specific direction. Each part does its work. And he made it manageable for each person to do their work so that everything ran really smoothly. Here's the pattern from Nehemiah 3, 1 to 32. And we're going to read this whole passage. And I want you to keep track of the, the different parts of the project and who was assigned to this project. Oh boy, lots of names in this one. So Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the Sheep Gate. That's a project. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the 100, where the, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hazanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Miramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. Nobles. <laughs> the Jashana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pesia, and Meshalam, son of Nesodia. I'm doing pretty good. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mitzpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jaden of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harshiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs to the next. So they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hor, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. And Hadish, son of Habanishiah, made repairs next to him. You see where this is going? There's, I counted 41 different sections of, of the wall that needed to be rebuilt. And you, you see here both individuals, literally families, like a father and his son did this part, um, teams of people. It's all different size, sizes of the project, all different uh, pieces of it, so that it would be a manageable project. And he got the whole thing completely assigned to all of these people. And in this way, all of the walls of the city were rebuilt. 41 groups of people and groups of people working on 41 projects in all shapes and sizes, both men and women and children. And the resounding note in all of this is this phrase, next to them. 41 groups working next to one another, all across the wall. Perhaps they were shouting back and forth to one another, sharing lunch together, listening to Guns N' Roses on their boombox, like, like good contractors do, right? So what I want to suggest to you is that this is the pattern God uses to build and rebuild in our world to this day. It's the same pattern Paul shared with us in 1 Corinthians 12 when he speaks about the idea of one body, many parts. Just as, just as a body, though one, has many parts, all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We are part of the body of Christ, and each one of us is part of it. You know, this is the pattern God uses for us to build and rebuild. Everyone in the church and New Life Fellowship has a different job, but we all do those jobs next to one another in unity. You know, not everyone's work is going to be the same by necessity. You know, some people are stronger than others physically. Uh, some people are already part of a bigger team in the church, like the administration board, and they're working together shoulder to shoulder. They're taking on some bigger projects. You know, some people are, are children, or they are people that don't have as much time that they can devote to the building. Those people have jobs too. It doesn't, 
not, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, maybe, maybe one of the teams is an entire family of mom, dad, and kids. I mean, I, one of the things that warms my heart so much is when a family comes in to clean the church. And there's just nothing like that for me, you know? Seeing a whole family serving together and doing their part in the work. When one part of the body suffers, the whole thing suffers. And so we, we help each other to adjoin the walls of our work properly. We show honor and grace to those who are stumbling. And at the end of the day, outsiders and even insiders sometimes cannot tell what one person or another has accomplished because the larger work of the wall has been carried out in perfect harmony with one another for Jesus' glory. So look, looking at this, this symbol behind me, uh, this represents the beginning of a thought process or the continuation of a thought process for us as we move forward in building and rebuilding a new life. You know, each person, each household, family or ministry team plays a part. And God has placed all of the people in each church body just as he sees fit. Every part is essential. You know, I was, I'm going through eldership stuff with a couple guys, and one of the thing you, things you notice Paul saying, he says, when you start a church in a community, appoint elders as soon as you can, and then move on to the next work. God, God gives the gifts, first of all, elders, first of all, teachers and, and pastors, and then everything else that's needed. This is what God does. And God has placed all the people in the church just as he sees fit. You might think to yourself, that a senior pastor's job is more important or significant. But the fact is that a senior pastor relies on many, many people just to do their part in the body, and their part isn't even necessarily the biggest part all the time. I would not be able to preach or lead uh, if I did not have a lot of help. I'd be consumed with so many things. And to tell you the truth, I'm indebted to many people in the body of Christ for giving me prophetic guidance on what to preach about in church and how to lead the church, including... This, this observation from Nehemiah 3 that my friend uh, shared with me, uh, I was talking to Jason, he shared this observation with me about, look, check this out, look at how the work, it's, 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 it's all this one big project, but all these smaller parts, and no one's expected to do the same thing. And there's just, some people have an hour, some people have 10 hours, whatever it might be, but God works with them all, shoulder to shoulder. And it was something that just, just was such a beautiful insight. And so even my sermons are many times gleaned from the wisdom of people in the church. Now, I can, I can, so the, the, this is not, the pastor is not the head of the church, as has been said for several weeks during our, our faith stories with, uh, with Jesse. Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the pastoral elders and a leader in the church, but, uh, but the body of the church is so much more than just a pastor. And the pastor is not even the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. So think about that. People are all allowed to contribute according to how God calls them to contribute, not comparing the relative size of their ministries with other people, but simply working alongside one another in harmony and unity. And when one part of the, the body suffers or the work suffers, we all suffer. We help each other to adjoin the walls of this thing together. We show honor and grace to those who are stumbling. And at the end of the day, as I said, no one can really tell. It's just they see the finished product and no one really knows what anyone did. We just did it shoulder to shoulder as a community. We all rely on one another tremendously for the jobs that we do. And I'm indebted to all of you in many ways that I can even do my part in the body of Christ. But it's time, it's time for families, for teams and individuals in the church to pray and move forward in faith. Asking God to stir your heart to life like he has done in the past. Throwing off the discouragement from both the inside of your own soul and your inner thought process to the outside where you've been disappointed with how something has gone in the past. Casting off failures and disappointments. Restoring broken relationships among the body that keep us from moving forward. Moving past our personal insecurities. 
the, the insecurities we have in our abilities and what we can do, and throwing off any burden that is not from God until you're, doing, until you're burdened with only one thing. That's what God's calling you to do in the body of Christ. That's the only burden that you want to have. All the other ones are just self, sin, insecurity, stuff we all suffer with and have to deal with all the time, our flesh, you know, our laziness, whatever it might be. Um, there's only, at the end of the day, we have to work through that stuff so that the only burden we have is serving Christ, which is not a burden at all. It's the greatest joy of life. One of the, one of the things that makes me more joyful, you know, life can be bleak at times. And when it comes to being able to study the Word and prepare a sermon and share a sermon, to experience the Holy Spirit's presence and grace to me during the process of preparing and then sh- sharing a word, you know, it's, it's, it, it gives more than it receives, right? And uh, people that lead worship can attest to this. Um, as, much, as much work as you might put in, as frustrated as, as frustrating as things can be at times, the joy of serving the Lord is an amazing burden that we can all have. And I say burden kind of in a cheeky way. It's hard work. Um, let's cast off those burdens. So I'd like, I'd like to just invite you, as the worship team comes forward, uh, to think about this idea of, of the body of Christ and what it means, and to ask God to stir up in your heart a passion for his name and a desire to build up the church. This is not a, um, there's actually nothing about this that's about guilt or who's doing what. It's not like that. It's just remembering. If we don't intentionally stick to the model of the body of Christ being the church, we're going to default into the American model of Senior pastor, church, sitting and watching somebody every Sunday, same thing, right? So we have, to be, we have to be very careful to do the rebuilding in a way that God wants to do and to encourage each other. And maybe your part of the wall is to be an encouragement to one other person. Maybe, maybe your part of the wall is to just get in a relationship with one other person. Like now, you know, who knows what God's calling you to? But it's not going to overwhelm you. It's not going to make you burn out when properly executed. Whatever God's calling you to, will be life-giving, and it will be for your good and the good of whoever you minister to. So let this wall, this will be our prayer wall for now. It will be a a, a reminder of what God desires to do. As it says in Hosea 10, it's breaking up our unplowed ground and seeking the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your body of the church. Thank you for the way you've worked in history and the way you continue to work and giving us, a, giving us the scriptures as a pattern for us to follow. Lord, I pray that you would speak to every heart here, Lord. And that at the end of our time of seeking you, not just today, but in the, as we think about these things in the future, that all of those burdens and burnouts and disappointments that we've had in the past would fade away. And the only burden we'd have in our hearts is a passion for your name and a desire to see Jesus be glorified. We look to you, Jesus, as the head of the church, truly the head of the church. I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. I've seen it, God. I've seen how faithful you are to carry us, to bring us to life. In Jesus' name, amen.